to the praise and honor of the almighty and everlasting God who is always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Today is the day that in God's providence, we are finishing out a five-week series on the epistle of James. And I realize not everybody's been along for the ride the whole way, but if you ask Mr. Google, Mr. Google will get you to the past sermons. Uh, And it seems to me that a fitting way to begin today's wrap-up of our five-week series on the epistle of James is to begin with today's psalm. A little less than the angels? Really? Psalm 8 sums up the whole of the Bible's design for human life. A little lower than the angels. In fact, ultimately, Lord of the angels. But that's for another time. Crowns of glory and honor on our heads as prayer D that you'll find in your Black Book of Common Prayer, page 373, when it is convenient for you to do so. As Prayer D summarizes, you formed us in your image, giving the whole world into our care so that in obedience to you, our Creator, we might rule and serve all your creatures. But what happened is, as Prayer A puts it, page 362, as Prayer A puts it, We have fallen into sin and become subject, become subject to evil and death. Psalm 8's a little lower than the angels has become the Tower of Babel's aspiration to displace God. We came to think that the only route to glory and honor is through tearing each other down, beginning with Adam and Eve's mutual recriminations and Cain's murder of his brother Abel. (laughs) Story that we're continuing to play out all around us, just listen, right up to our own day of divorce, domestic violence. A, A dominion that we were given over the works of God's hands so that we could nurture and draw out creation's potential has become exploitation as we have become dominated ourselves by greed and gluttony. The bitter irony from the Bible's point of view is that thinking ourselves strong, we have become weak. Thinking to enlarge ourselves, we diminish ourselves. Thinking to find ourselves apart from God, we actually lose ourselves. Listen to the way the subjection comes out even in our own language. We become swollen with pride. The proudful person has no idea of what's really there. We're consumed with envy. We are carried away by anger. I mean, doesn't it feel good to just let it rip? But but you've lost yourself. And it feels good in the moment, but afterwards, 
Who was that person? We're driven by gluttony, greed, and lust. We're lost, even to ourselves. Now, back to James. What James realized when his brother Jesus appeared to him from the dead was that now that Jesus is alive again, death is working backwards. Its curse has been broken. Our victimization by sin is ended. And some weird cosmic fishing, fishing line knot has begun to get untangled. And the place where the world should be able to see that, says James, is in us, the first fruits of God's creation. Going back to chapter 1. Just like the indicator geyser that lets Yellowstone tourists know that beehive geyser is about to blow. And what James is so animated about is that he doesn't see people in his charge getting it. They are religious, to be sure, going to synagogue, mouthing religious words like God is one, but they're stuck in patterns of what can only be called bad religion. And that's why James is so insistent to reshape their understanding of what pure and undefiled religion is. So, for instance, in chapter 2, moving his readers past favoritism to the rich, the hip, and the powerful, and on to a vision for human flourishing through caring for orphans and widows in their distress. That's why James is so insistent in chapter 3 to wave them off from using their words to manipulate people to self-serving ends, but rather urging his readers to use their words to absolve and bless and consecrate. And that's why James was so insistent in chapter 4, as we saw last week, to rebuke his readers for cozying up to the world with its deadly sins of pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and desire, and to call them instead to take God as friend, drawing near to God and cleansing hands and purifying hearts. And here at last, in today's passage, James softens his tone. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Now, clues as to what is really on James's heart lie at the beginning of verses 14 and 15. You might note in your bulletin that chapter 4, verse 14 reads like this, and here's where the translation could have been more helpful. The beginning of verse 14 says, are any among you, your translation is sick, but the actual Greek word is better translated weak. It's a Greek word that means without strength or without power without might. And then the beginning of verse 15 
The prayer of faith will save the, and it, your translation says sick. It's actually the prayer of faith will save the weary, worn out, the incapacitated, the exhausted. Now, to the extent that the problem is sin, which can be incapacitating and exhausting and can make you just feel like I'm totally, I'm a turtle turned over on my back and I can't get up. To the extent that the problem is sin, James acknowledges that it's something that presses down, turns you upside down, and from which you need to be, notice the language in verse 15, need to be raised up, turned right back side, right side up again. Or at the end of our passage, it's something that makes you wander from which you or I need to be brought back. And this is all in agreement with what Jesus says. The spirit is willing, but remember, the flesh is weak. Same word, Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. Because we're all susceptible to any number of temptations. To use John's language in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 16. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and of the eyes, the pride of life. Stuff takes us out and makes us weak and weary. And notice then that part of the answer to our weakness in this passage is our receiving, in chapter 4, verse 14, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. What's that all about? Well, it so happens that our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, his own power to resist the devil in the wilderness was his baptism and then his anointing by the Holy Spirit when he comes out of the water. Have you ever noticed that according to the New Testament, Jesus doesn't do a single, single miracle until after his baptism and his anointing. And then he goes into the wilderness stands Satan down, and then be goes on to exorcise demons, to raise the dead, to give the blind back their sight, to make the lame to walk. And so it is for you and me. And that's why I submit to you, James calls for the weak to call the elders and receive a fresh anointing. Now, there may have been all kinds of thoughts about medicinal, oil, uh, medicinal oils in James's day, but the real point for him is that the same power that came upon Jesus at his anointing by the Holy Spirit when he came up out of the waters of the River Jordan and empowered his ministry is the very same power that was bestowed upon you when the oil was applied to your forehead at your baptism. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you receive power that fights for and with you in your struggle with all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and of the eyes, the pride of life. And it can make a world of difference 
to receive a fresh anointing, trusting in a fresh empowerment and renewal. And if you've never been baptized, well, let's talk. Maybe the missing dimension in your life is the actual presence of the living God to heal, to bring forgiveness, and to bring power. Now, the same logic applies to other ways in which weakness and weariness and infirmity and incapacity show up in our lives. And it's really interesting to look at the other ways that the word weak or weakness is used in the New Testament. Because, well, there is weakness in body and therefore sickness and therefore the need for a physical healing. Christ works on this all the time in his ministry. And underneath it all lies something that Matthew says of him, Matthew 8, verse 17. Christ took our infirmities and bore our diseases. He's taking them into and upon himself, quoting Isaiah 53, 4, so that he could take them all the way to the cross and then take them into the cold, lonely tomb so that they could stay there and he could come up alive, fresh, and new on your behalf and mine. Rising in promise of an ultimate healing on the day of resurrection. And the wonderful thing is that even in the now, sometimes it is his pleasure to bless us with a foretaste of that ultimate healing and raise us up from sick beds. Well, then there's also the possibility that we may be weak from a disability like Paul's thorn in the flesh, which he refers to as a weakness that's come upon him that he's asked the Lord to take away time and again. But it turns out it's God's good pleasure that it not go away so that the Lord can reveal his strength and Paul's bearing with that weakness. So sometimes you and I get to confess along with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. And that knowledge is its own sort of healing. And finally, we could go on, but one more. There's a certain weakness that Scripture acknowledges when the world makes you feel like you are a nobody. And there's so many people today who through memories that they wish they could escape, through reputations that they feel have been stolen from them, so many people who feel that they've been reduced to being a nobody. It's helpful for us to remember with humility and thanks that Paul, in, at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, says God chooses the weak of the world, that he goes on to call the nobodies of this world. There is so much that can make you feel beaten down, discarded, dispirited, 
and just ready to give up. The one thing that those of us who know that we have been loved and touched with the love from heaven through Jesus that we experienced in baptism, the one healing word that we can offer is that nobody is a nobody to God. And when the waters of baptism and the oil of the Holy Spirit touch us, they let our hearts know that we are clean and that we have been given a power from on high and that we are somebody. The healing there is a straightened back, strengthened hands, a fortified heart, and an ability to forgive and to be a part and a voice of God's healing in the world. So, and finally, if you just give me another couple of minutes, two brief points of application. One, I urge you to avail yourself of the opportunities to receive healing prayer as you need healing prayer, or to enlist in the army, or I should say, and or to enlist in the army of healing prayer ministry. It's not for nothing, friends, that, we're, that we bear the name of St. Luke, whom Paul calls in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, the beloved physician. Today, during Eucharist, you can be prayed for, even anointed. Every Thursday night, right here in partnership with Inheritance House, we offer a healing, a service of healing in, with Eucharist. Every weekday, right here in the St. Mary's Chapel, we offer the Eucharist. And on Wednesday, the focus is on healing. And all week long, our friends at Inheritance House, the ministry headed up by Deacon Rose Sapp here in downtown, Mr. Google will put you in touch with them as well. You have access to people who will pray with and for you and anoint you. And we have access to really great Christian counselors and when you need someone to dig deeper with you, we can put you in touch. Just let us know in the connection card. Don't bear it alone. Let prayers come alongside you. Call the elders of the church so that we can anoint and pray with you. And secondly, simply, don't give up on James's vision as we close out this letter. Don't give up on James's vision that we can be a kind of first fruits of God's new creation. Nothing that has happened to you to, dis, to besmirch his image in you, to rob you and me of what is, it truly is to be a little less than the angels and to be crowned with glory and honor, none of that, none of that will stand on the final day. For as the writer to the Hebrews says, quoting chapter, quoting Psalm 8, we don't yet see ourselves. We don't see yet see ourselves living like we're just a little less than angels, crowned with glory and honor, but we do see Jesus. And he has already been crowned in anticipation of a glory that he will share with you and with me. As Andrew Peterson and Andrew Osinga so nicely put it in their song, After the Last Tear Falls, 
Friends, after the last tear falls, after the last secret's been told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone, after the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, after the last disgrace, after the last lie to save some face, after the last brutal jab from a poison tongue, after the last dirty politician, after the last meal down at the mission, after the last lonely night in prison, after the last young husband sails off to join the war, after the last this marriage is over, after the last young girl's innocence is stolen, after the last years of silence that won't let a heart open, there is love. And in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love. And love again. We'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all. And we'll look back on these tears as old tales because after the last tear falls, there is love. Amen.